We continue our series, The Glories of the Cross, looking at the apostolic teaching of the cross. What makes this glorious? Paul talks about the cross as foolishness to those who are not saved. And yet for us as Christians, it's glorious. And the whole reason I wanted to do this series and focus on all of these major sections of apostolic teaching is, I think for many of us who have been Christians for a while, the cross is neither foolish nor glorious, it's just kind of meh. We just go through life and we like it, but it's not great. I, I, think, I think sometimes the, the cross of Christ can be to the Christian life like the moon is to the earth. All of us are aware that there is a moon, we think it's pretty, we think it's nice, we look at it in the night sky, but we don't really think about it. It's really far away. When in actuality, if you study the moon, it does nice things for us, like the tides and the changing of the seasons and keeping the earth on its orbit so it doesn't spin and fly off into the universe. We all appreciate that. You see, the moon has some everyday applicability when you really think about it. I think the cross of Christ is that way in our spiritual lives. We look at it, we see it, we think it's pretty, we think it's beautiful, but it's far away. It's in the past, and it doesn't seem to have any applicability to our everyday lives. Yet when we really dive into the apostolic teaching of the cross, when we look at it, we see that it is doing things in our hearts, in our lives, every day. The cross of Christ is the anchor around which the whole of Christian life orbits. It is the reason for the things that we have. And so we should dive in and study it. We should all become cross experts as we understand how the cross gets into our daily lives. So this morning, I want, to, I want to preach a message to just remind you of what you already know. If you've been changed by the cross of Christ at one point in your life, you were so struck by the reality of Christ's sacrifice that it changed you. And so I just want to bring us back, remind us of what we already know. Let's go to Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin now live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. We come here to the sixth out of our seven-part series 
and it's right that we're starting to bring this down and apply it. You get this verbal cue from Paul right away in the beginning of the chapter that he's starting to apply the gospel to our lives. What shall we say then? What's he referring back to? Well, all of chapters 1 through 4, which is what we've been talking about for the last six weeks, that we are saved by grace alone, nothing that we do, that we've been brought from death to life, that the sacrifice has broken the curse. In light of all of that, how do you live your life? In light of everything we've been talking about, salvation by grace through faith, adoption into the promises, what now, Paul? And his answer is right here. What should we say then? But the first question that he gives is a question that I think in modern times we don't often ask, or we don't think about asking. Paul's first objection is, should we then continue sinning so that grace can abound all the more? If grace is absolutely free, what does it matter, Paul? Most famously, Voltaire, the French philosopher, said, God will forgive me, it's his job. If grace is free, what does it matter? Why, why does anything matter if grace is free? And so Paul goes in and he says, wait a minute, that's not how grace works. See, I think this question, if grace is free, shouldn't we just sin all the more? Does sin really matter? Is actually a very fair question. And my fear isn't for those who wrestle with that question, but for those who have stopped wrestling with that question. See, I meet a lot of people who have no visible relationship with Christ. They often haven't been to church in months or years. I don't see any evidence of them cherishing God. They don't worry about sin. They don't weep over the sacrifice of Christ. They don't sing heartily in our congregation, which I'm very thankful for those of you who do. That's an absolute joy and delight. But they don't feel broken over sin because they once said a prayer. And they say things like, well, you know, I'm just covered in grace. With no real evidence of change, no real evidence of weeping over their sin or brokenness or cherishing Christ. And Paul is saying, you don't understand. That's not what grace is. You see, he goes on to say in this chapter, grace was, was you being united with Christ, you dying and rising with Christ. There was a change in who you were. Brothers and sisters, grace is not a contract that we sign with God. It's not a, a cosmic vending machine where we stick in prayer, get grace. Give, give your church attendance, get forgiveness. No, Paul says there's an absolute transformation in who you are. If you've been touched by grace, you are dead to sin. So I've based my message this morning about three questions that I want us to ask ourselves in this text, that help us discover where we stand before it. The first question is, is your relationship to sin the same as it was before you were saved? Is your relationship to sin the same as it was before you were saved? Because Paul says, if we're Christians, our relationship to sin has drastically changed. We've died to it. So do your sins bother you the same amount, or perhaps even a little less, now that you're saved because they're covered in grace? Friend, you cannot keep the same relationship that you had with sin now that you have a relationship with God. I can't say this emphatically enough. I feel like this has been a point in every one of these sermons in this series. Is, is friends, there is a false gospel out there of easy believism that says all you have to do is make this mental affirmation to God. Agree with him and you're saved. 
No change, no cherishing, no diving into faith, no absolute transformation. Just affirm God and you're saved. And it's not true. That is a false gospel that sends people to hell. I fear this in our churches. I fear this in our families when we we develop this idea that any little connection to God is enough. It's not. We must repent and believe and embrace the gospel. We have to do this for ourselves. It's not enough to just come to the church and affirm these things. You can't be culturally Christian. Whenever I meet somebody and I ask them how long they've been a Christian and they say my whole life, I say, no, you haven't. (laughs) That's not how that works. You can't be a Christian your whole life. You can't be a Christian because of where you were born or where you go to church. You have to be transformed by Christ on the inside out. I fear this for families. I meet so many families, and I'm very tenderhearted to this because it's happened in my own family where we're afraid to talk to our cousins or our kids or our siblings because we don't want to drive them further away. But they think they're saved because they signed a card once. It's not true. We have to speak the true gospel that we are transformed. We are dead to sin. So what does that mean? If true Christians have died to sin, what does that look like? Well, look at verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What is Paul saying here? Well, the main point of this passage and the message is that this is a spiritual reality. Let me say that again. Both of those words are important. A spiritual reality that when Christ died, your old sinful self was put to death with him. And as a result, you no longer are connected to sin. Let me say that again. A spiritual reality that when Christ died, your sinful self was put to death with him, and the result is that you are no longer connected to sin. That is the essential reality of what it means to be united with Christ in his death. That's what this passage is about. Now, here's the problem for us, and it forms the second question of the message. What is real? What is real to you? See, the problem I think I have with this passage, and I felt it in my own heart as I was wrestling with this, is my own Western brain puts the categories of spiritual and real in different places. That we have spiritual things we think of as make-believe things, metaphorical things. And then there are real things which are every day that I can taste, touch, smell, feel. I might as well have just said, in faith you are united with Christ in Narnia as well as saying you're united with Christ in the Spirit. In in our minds, they basically mean the same thing, and I think that's largely because of sin and blindness, and also largely because in our culture, that is the way we talk. Real is physical. Real is testable. And this morning, I want to help us break down that wall, which is absolutely absent from the Bible. This is a spiritual reality. It is real. It is absolutely real because that which is before the eyes of God is more real than anything you see. So Paul isn't talking about a metaphor or a word picture or an example. His language and ours both have perfectly good ways to represent that. No, he says, you have died with Christ. 
and are now seated with Christ on high. This is something that has really, truly happened. It's just not physical. And here's why this is such a problem for us. We think the only real things are physical things. Here's the big problem with that in the Christian faith. People don't rise from the dead based solely on the rules of the physical world, and we saw somebody rise from the dead. So we got a problem. The resurrection of Christ in and of itself reveals that there is another greater realm of reality that we have to deal with. And Paul is saying that it is the facts of that reality that free you from sin in this life. So there is another world a world of spirituality that is the key to us understanding how we walk in the Spirit. So that's why the second question this morning is, what do you think is real? Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This spiritual reality that changes you. So here's the reality. When you were baptized... And not the magical act of baptism. It's not a sacrament. Remember, 1 Peter, baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, not a physical washing, but as an appeal to a clear conscience. So when you are spiritually baptized, which is represented by your physical baptism, your, your body, spiritually, was joined to Christ's death. You were actually joined, really joined, not physically joined. So, a real spiritual death and a real spiritual resurrection take place. Why is that important? Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, our spiritual union with Christ is the necessary precursor to becoming a new creation in Christ. A new resurrection in Christ. And this, friends, is really good news. If you are in Christ, you are not simply a washed up person. You are not a cleaned up person. No, you are a new person. And I want you to hear that this morning. If you are the kind of person who's walking around with past shame, this is good news for you. I know some of you in here are very ashamed of past sins. And it is easy to want to run away and not open yourselves up too much and not let people know, not let people see you inside because you know some of the things you've done and said and what people would think if they saw them. I want you to know this morning, you are really, truly separated from those sins. That person died with Christ. Before God, you no longer bear any of the shame of that sin. You're not cleaned up. It's not even really a second chance. No, it's new creation. You were raised to walk in newness of life. That, that you with the addiction. That, that you who had to sleep around in college to prove himself. That you who has to act tougher and smarter than everybody else to feel secure. That you isn't you. Because in Christ, we are not just offered cleaned up lives. We are offered new life. We are raised with Christ. But the reality isn't just to free us from past guilt and shame. It absolutely is for that. But there's so much more. The reality isn't just to free us from past guilt and shame, but also to 
break the bonds of present sin. Look at verse 6 and 7. We know our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So here's the picture. Not just our physical bodies, no, the body of sin. What does Paul mean by that? Well, body can refer to the whole person. Paul is using this picture of saying the, the, the person who was related to sin, not just our physical bodies, because we don't believe that physical bodies are bad. Paul, in fact, sees our physical bodies as a good thing that's going to be purified in the ultimate resurrection. But no, that person who was related to sin, Paul elsewhere calls him the flesh, the fleshly man, was put to death with Christ. Before you were Christ, remember three weeks ago we talked about being enslaved to sin. We were passion junkies who had these urges for sin controlled by our passions. That person has been put to death. We were in our spirits sin addicts, but the body that had that addiction is laid in the grave, and our new selves are in Christ. See, the picture is this. How do you tempt a dead person? It's kind of silly and morbid, isn't it? I mean, I have a massive sweet tooth, and one of the magical discoveries that I made in my 30th year of life is that my waistline can no longer keep up with my taste buds. That is a problem. So I have to daily fight the battle, especially in the summertime, because every day I drive home, and it's about 20 degrees hotter here than it is where I'm from, and I drive right past the ice cream store on my way to my house. And it is a daily battle not to pull into the Golden Twist drive through How much chocolate ice cream will I be indulging when I'm dead? See? You'll, you'll all gather here in this church, hopefully a long time from now, and lay me in state. I won't be popping out for a cookie. That temptation will have no power over me anymore. I'll have no urge, because I will be dead to that. How many debt collectors, how much money do they get out of dead guys? That's, that's the perfect way to get out of your loans. You can't collect on it. They're not stressed out about it anymore. And that's the picture that Paul gives of our relationship to sin. This, the you that had that craving has died there's no bearing on the situation anymore. Sin can't have you because the you that sin had no longer lives. Your old self died, and now sin, he says in the end of the passage, cannot have you, cannot have dominion over you. It's a contradiction of realities for sin to be ruling in your life because the sinful you is dead. Really spiritually dead. But even more than that, he goes on to say we are raised with Christ. See, this is, the, this is the picture not only that our sinful self is dead, but now there is a righteous person that has been raised because we are united to Christ. Verse 5, for if we have been united in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved. For one who has died from sin 
The one who has died has been set free from sin. Excuse me. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead and will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. See, Christ is our model. Christ is who we've been baptized into, so his perfect life becomes our perfect life. Here's the logic of the resurrection. If you take one thing away from this message, it is that the resurrection is for everyday life. Here's the logic of the resurrection. If the power of sin is shown in death, right? That's 1 Corinthians 15. The power of sin is shown in that it works death. And Jesus beats death. What does that say about Jesus and the power of sin? You follow that logic? If the power of sin is shown in death and Jesus can overpower death, Jesus has to have more power than sin. That's what we just sang about. Jesus is better. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He has to be more power than sin. So take this one and put it in your pocket next time you're tempted. You have someone within you that is more power than, powerful than sin, and he has proven it. Sin cannot have you. I love that song that we sing, You are stronger, you are stronger, sin is broken. Christ, when he rose from the grave, put the absolute gavel down on the verdict that sin could not overpower him. And we have truly been spiritually baptized into him. So the resurrection applies to your life every single day in that sin can never truly have power over you. Friend, if you have come here this morning and there is some crippling addiction in your life, there's some sin that you keep going back to, that you're hiding, some pattern that you cannot break. Because Christ has been raised, you do not need to live in that for one more moment. He has broken the power of sin. It cannot have you. Not that it should not. It cannot have you. Because that person is dead and Christ's resurrection life has taken over. So why then is it so hard? That's what we come down to, isn't it? If this is the reality, that's what I'm trying to convince you of, what is real. That this is real, even though it's spiritual, it's real even though we can't see it. If this is real, why is it so hard? Why is sin so hard to shake? Friends, this is not a triumphalistic message. I'm not claiming, and neither is Paul, that we can be sinless or that the Christian life is easy. I mean, just flip over to the next page. In Romans 7, Paul is wrestling with the Christian life. Yet he says, sin cannot have dominion. So what is the answer? Well, I think the answer comes in verses 11 through 14. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider. This is the first imperative. This is the first order Paul has given us in this entire passage. All of this up to this point is what Christ has done in us. This is the one response. Consider yourselves 
And this is a word that has fallen out of, out of use as an active verb in the English language. We think of considering as, as studying. That's not what he means here. He, he's saying, take as true. You're going to have the opportunity to choose from several different things to decide which is true. Take it as true that you are dead to sin. You're going to have truths on which you can base your life, truths on which you can operate. Which one are you going to choose to believe? Take as true. Consider that you are dead to sin. What's the meaning of this? Well, the power of sin in our lives, the power of temptation in our lives is the power of a lie. The urge is true, but the results are not. I think it's the picture of a drug addict going through withdrawals, right? You see some people who have been addicted to certain substances, and when they try to cut it back, when they try to get off, their body starts reacting as though they cannot live without that. And they'll be short of breath, or they'll have fevers, and their body's reacting as if something is being withheld from me that's going to kill me. But we know that's a lie. It's, in fact, the substance itself which has been killing them. And if they can break through the withdrawal, they'll be better. Friends, that is the power of temptation in our lives. It tells us, you can't live without me. You can't go one more moment resisting this sin. It's going to hurt if you try but it's a lie. The urge is real. The urge is absolutely real and absolutely strong. That's what Romans 7 is all about. But its truth is based in a lie. Sin cannot have dominion over you. So how do we beat it? You, you can live without it. Sin cannot ultimately have dominion over you. So how do you break through the lie? Well, I think the answer comes in the following verses. Let not sin reign. This is verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So how do we do it? Well, we start to believe this. But our third question this morning is, will you fight? Will you fight for that? Will you fight for this belief? Because Paul says, take it as true that you are dead to sin. And how do you do that? Well, don't let sin reign. Fight back. We have to get to a place of, of, of hating sin, saying, no, I won't let sin take me anymore. I don't have to live like this. We have to fight to believe in that truth, that Jesus is better. I love that chorus. Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Not work a lot harder. No, make my heart believe that he is better than this thing that I want. He is better than the good life. He is better than my anger. He is better. Make my heart believe. We have to fight to believe this truth. Don't let sin reign. It wants to convince you that it's in control, and it can't be. So how do we do that? Well, we hit it with truth. We hit it with these truths that we've sung about this morning, that we are dead to sin and alive to God. 
Friends, this is the fight of faith. The, the world calls faith a flighty sentimentality that, that we just, we like God. It feels nice to have him as a crutch. But no, this is the fight of faith. This is the fight that Christ fought for us. That we want to believe that because Christ has beaten death, sin can have no power. It's connecting the dots, pulling back the veil, seeing what is really going on when we are tempted. Friends, this is why we need the Bible. It is the sword of truth. We need truth to fight for faith, to see, to see what God has done, to know what is really real. John Piper writes, the sword of the Spirit is that which knocks the sugar coating off of the temptation to sin. I love that image, that sin comes and it looks tasty, it looks sweet. Of course, this illustration appeals to me especially because it's a sugar coating. And we have to take truth and say, no, that's not what's really going on. I know a greater reality. I know what's really there. Friends, this is also why our daily devotions, our daily scripture reading and praying and singing and hearing the word is so important. Not because it makes us closer to God. Jesus does that. That's what we've been talking about for the last six weeks. But what it does is it tunes us in. It gives us eyes to see this reality. And it's really hard in the moments of temptation to make up for a week of not even looking at Christ. And yet that gives us constantly retuned eyes to see this is what's really going on. This is what's really going on behind the veil. Spiritually, I am dead to sin and alive in Christ. The goal is to break through the veils of lies, to see the truth that sin has already been beaten. That you don't have to break. That's the, that's the, the true insidiousness of a pattern of temptation, isn't it? Where you sit there and you feel that urge, and you resist for a moment, but you know it's not going to go away. You know that it will hold you. Maybe it's anger, and you know, okay, so I didn't yell at that person but that's going to bug me for the rest of the day. It's going to get me. I'm going to be bitter. We've been down this path a thousand times before. There's no way to avoid this. Those are all lies of sin. It has already been broken. The tomb is empty. And if Jesus beat death, he has to beat sin because death is showing the power of sin. So we have to claim that truth. But not only is this language of war used, don't let sin reign, but also this language of worship. Don't offer yourself to sin. Verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. The idea of offering language. We're all very familiar with that in the Old Testament, that, that they would come offer something on the altar. And we can't talk about it a lot this morning, but the idea wasn't that ancient pagans just ran around worshiping any rock, tree, and stump because they were weird. They wanted something. You worship, you worship the fertility god when you want to have kids. You worship the god of crops when you need your crops to grow. The idea was to get something you need. Sin does the same thing. What will you offer me so that I can give you this pleasure? What will you offer me so that you can get out of this pain? And Paul says, let's cut that whole thing off. Offer yourself to God. Give yourself to him. Start there. He is the true giver of all good things. Don't offer yourself to unrighteousness. 
as a, I'm going to show my own, uh, my own era a little bit here, but I grew up on Audio Adrenaline. They had a, they had a great song. You can't beat 90s music, man. They had a great song called This Day, and the chorus line was, I want to say this prayer before my feet can hit the ground. I give this day to you. Every single day, I give this day to you. The Christian life is not only one of resisting sin. No, it's the active life of submitting ourselves to God. Why? Because Christ has done so. The life he lives, he lives to God, Paul says right here. So we are baptized into his death and into his resurrection. Friends, this is not works righteousness. This is living in the reality of what we already are. Right? You might have heard something like this from your dad when you were little. You'd go out with your friends, go out to a movie or whatever. And my dad would say, act like an Eben. What do you mean? Well, act in such a way that is consistent with who you already are. Me cutting up the movies doesn't make me not an Eben. That was, that was fixed long before. But I can live in such a way that is consistent with that reality. Friends, let's live as what we are. Let's fight to see what is real. Not visible, but real. In closing, there's, there's one story that has helped me in my own sanctification a lot. You'll hear this, me bring up this story because I think it's a beautiful picture of what the fight for faith is in the Christian life. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Kings 6. Elisha the prophet has really angered the enemies of God as prophets are often wont to do. And the king of Syria comes and surrounds the prophet's house with an entire army. He's, he's really ticked. And he just, he's, he's coming with a whole army. He surrounds this house. It's just Elisha and one servant surrounded by chariots. I mean, not only does this guy want to kill Elijah, he wants to do it in grand fashion and just show what he thinks of that. And the servant does what anybody in their right mind would do. He freaks out. It's two guys with walking sticks surrounded by an army with chariots. And Elisha prays this prayer. He says, God, open his eyes. And he sees that the mountains are filled with angels protecting them. So my question for you in that story is, which vision was real? Which vision was real? The empty hills or the full hills? The disaster or the protection? Friends, in the Christian life, we are constantly asked that question. Every time you are tempted to sin, this is the question that your, your heart is being asked. Which is real? Is this desire right in the moment? Is that real? Is that true to who I am? Is that what God has called me to and made me? Or is there something better? Is there a reality that I have to see? Friends, let's fight to see what we really are. Let's pray together. Father, give us new eyes. Give us new eyes to see the glories of the cross that has brought us into newness of life, that has set us free, that has broken the chains of sin. We need to see it. It's too easy to see our sin. It's too easy to see our shame. It's too easy to see temptation. 
Father, I pray by your Spirit this morning that you would break the power of canceled sin in the lives of some here who have been trapped in patterns that they feel they cannot overcome. That you would show them the newness of life that they already walk in. You've purchased this all by your Son. It's in his name we pray and praise and sing. In Jesus' name, amen.